On today's episode of When Does It Get Fun, we're joined by Richard Moss, co-creator of First Person Shooter, the definitive FPS documentary, a four-hour record of the evolution of the FPS genre from Doom and Duke through to Goldeneye, Halo, and everything in between. We talk about Richard's fellow FPS doc creator, David L. Credick, and the painstaking work a four-hour documentary requires, as well as Richard's odd love of sports simulation games and our perception of the violence in modern FPS. All that and more, come in here. I think, yeah, if there was somewhere I was going to start, I I did kind of, like, during the time when we, me and Sober were watching it, we actually, like, watched the documentary together so that we could kind of uh, talk about it as we were going and, and have some more stream of consciousness <laughs> notes as we were going through it. But um, I did, like, you, you mentioned before that obviously there's a heavy focus on, like, the, the 90s and, and those types of games because that's that's what you guys were more familiar with and what you enjoyed more. Um, and it did feel to me that like, oh, sorry, yeah. I, I was just going to add, and also uh, we did a survey of our crowdfunding backers at the beginning, and uh, overwhelmingly they were interested in 90s stuff and uh, development stuff, which is fantastic because that's exactly what we were most interested in. But it wasn't like we just made what we wanted. We also we we tailored to what the backers were asking for. Interesting. So if the backers had been like, "Well, we want four and a half hours on Call of Duty," would you guys <laughs> would you guys have been uh, up for for that as a documentary? Yeah, you know, we would have had to to do some pivoting if if people were pushing more for modern shooters. But we would have done it. Uh, it's uh, it's the the mantra of this creative VC company that uh, was uh, was bankrolling uh, sort of the project um, that 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 we're working for here, and uh, it's uh, it's like um, by fans for fans, and uh, everything is made in collaboration with fans where collaboration is sort of that loose term where it means, well, we, we do surveys that ask for feedback because there's too many of you to, to do individualized stuff here. We have to take your feedback in the aggregate and tailor our content to fit what the majority of you are asking for. And along the way, we'll try to uh, share things with you and adjust our trajectory based on your feedback along the way. So if 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 we're getting a bad reaction from something, we're not going to double down on it. We're going to shift in a different direction. Well, I mean, that's sort of refreshing uh, to hear a little bit with regards to Patreon stuff, um, because I do feel like, you know, there's obviously been a lot of bad stories of, <laughs> of Patreons in the past where it's like... Uh, Definitely more focused on what the people running the Patreon want, and also uh, a lack of delivery uh, quite often. But it seems like you guys were really like invested from the beginning in in listening to what people wanted and and taking feedback into account. Yeah, and it's it's something that David and I both feel passionately about uh, regarding crowdfunding. That if you're going to go that route, you've got to bring in your audience to the journey. And uh, 
and not just in some token way, but actually really share with them the highs and lows of the project and let them have that inside track and let them give you feedback that guides your direction. And uh, it was a bit of an adjustment for uh, Robin Robin Block, the CEO of Creative EC, our boss, who wasn't super comfortable with the level of familiarity I was bringing to the the Kickstarter updates and the Indiegogo updates. So uh, we did uh, two crowdfunding campaigns. Uh, there was a Kickstarter that paid for the uh, interviews to get recorded and then an Indiegogo that paid for the post-production, which is the writing and editing of the film. And all along the way, I was writing these updates, uh, giving people progress reports on how we're doing and letting people in on some of the challenges we're facing. And there were lots of times when uh, there was pushback internally about how much I was sharing. And and so it, it was a, a bit uncomfortable for our boss who, who's trying to do something more uh, surface level, <laughs> I guess you might say, but it, I think it's for the best. And, and he recognized pretty quickly that, uh, it was helping uh, make our audience more comfortable with whatever we're doing. And when we inevitably had to delay the thing, nobody really complained. Everyone just accepted it. And that, I'd say, is because we were upfront and honest all the way through about how things were going, what was happening. And, yeah, we left out some details, but that that's, that's to be expected. You don't want to bore people with all the tiny details of what's going wrong in your project. Yeah. And I, I suppose there's probably a concern that you might get your audience worried about the project or ceasing to believe yeah, exactly. that the money that they've invested in it. Yeah. yeah. So I can, yeah. So I guess there's, it's sort of an air of sort of bad publicity or a professionalism that you're worried about breaching but also you want to be forthcoming about how things are going because it's crowdfunded. So that actually, yeah, that does sound a bit stressful to have to navigate the waters of. Yeah, and so often it's just a, a matter of getting the language right. So, for instance, with some of our interviews, we ended up with a really bad audio. The, some of the camera operators that we hired, because uh, most of the interviews had to be shot by a third party, not by our own guy. And uh, it's all over the place what camera operators are like when it comes to recording audio. And some of them were just terrible. The reverb on it was ridiculous. It, I've likened it to being uh, in a in, in sort of a cathedral-sized bathroom. It was so much reverb. <laughs> that I knew as the audio editor, I had to figure out how to fix. And uh, that's a, a huge pain. But so there were times when I wanted to talk about that in an update. And I had to pull back a bit on the level of detail because we want to make sure that people are seeing us as pros and that we're hiring professionals as well, that we, we know what we're doing and we're not wasting your money. Right. And you probably also want to be careful to, in those moments, not maybe specifically deride a third party doing something for you. Gary. Or maybe it becomes harder <laughs> to find outsourced work in future. 
where companies think, well, I don't want to work for them because there's bad publicity. Yeah, exactly. You, you don't want to get a reputation for trashing people just because they didn't do an exquisite job for you. You, you're a professional. You want to maintain that air of professionalism in everything you do, all communications. Um, and so that's why we, we didn't go into details about the two interviews we had to reshoot because the, they were such a disaster and we didn't name names about who supplied the, the best footage and the worst footage. We just, we got footage and we did what we could with it to make it shine as much as possible in the final film. Could I, uh, could I ask, you had mentioned reaching out to the backers and the audience that's going to be waiting for the documentary to come out and being willing to shift your focus in subject matter. If they want to see more retro FPS, you'll shoot more retro FPS and have that be the focus of the documentary or the opposite, whatever they're looking for. Is the same thing true for the case where the documentary could be more historical and objective versus more argumentative? Would you have changed your focus there as well if the audience was saying, hey, we want to really see you put forth an argument that, you know, shooters have gotten worse over the years, for example, for an example, would you be willing to uh, make the documentary in that sense? Or are you really only interested in doing sort of a more historical objective, just retelling of what has gone on over the decades of, of the genre? Yeah, well, it was, it, it was important to our branding that what we're doing, because the company had made, uh, film documentaries before on 1980s horror horror movies and uh 1980s sci-fi movies so we had to be consistent with that brand and it's all about celebrating the genre and so we wouldn't want to be too dismissive of anything that's happened within the genre we want to be sort of well everything is wonderful uh, while finding that uh that balance where we are telling people some stories through the interviews that we've done that, well, no, everything's not completely wonderful. Uh, these guys actually suffered tremendously under grunge culture and some of them are now willing to talk about how they suffered for their art and how unhealthy it was that they were working like 18 hour days or 20 hour days for weeks on end. And I think we've got a Cliff Blazinski quote in there where he's like, He's he's only sleeping a few hours a night and he's subsisting on a diet of Mountain Dew and pizza or, or some some really unhealthy food. And it's a wonder that these people survived how given how unhealthily they're working for, for such a long time. And they they'd have relationships you know, fall out. And, and we wanted to make sure that we we don't just show the glossy side of FPS games that, that we show that these are people who made these. So would we have changed tack if people had overwhelmingly pushed for something probably to some extent, but we do, we do also have to be true to, uh, the, the mission of the, the film to celebrate a genre and to, uh, to our reputations as as journalists to 
to not be too happy or too uh, opinionated because we're trained to try to, to show a balanced story. Yeah, it's it's interesting just to branch off that point. And I guess like this ties into the like the questions that I I sent you to as as topic ideas, but um it felt it did feel a little to me like cuz obviously you guys uh had a lot of focus on on 90s games and stuff and, and early 2000s and then uh and it did seem like uh up to the mid to late 2000s the documentary stylistically was definitely more uh, here's the story of FPS and and how it grew and stuff, and then it perhaps got a bit more of a thesis towards the end of um, mm. <laughs> discussing modern FPS and perhaps how games like Call of Duty and Battlefield had had sent the genre down a trajectory that was very different to the '90s and things like that. Was that what was the discussion like around talking about those kinds of topics when the overarching uh, sentiment was supposed to be, I suppose, this one of celebrating the the genre in its entirety. Yeah, that was really hard, and that was hard for a few reasons. Uh, one of them actually is down to runtime. So originally, this film was supposed to be about three and a half hours, and we ended up at four and a half, and uh, that was uh, that was kind of through just the confidence. We were lucky that uh, that Robin was so confident in the quality of what we were making that he allowed us to push right to the limit of what a blu-ray can hold on it uh before you uh, increase the the manufacturing complexity uh which is a whole other story that i i probably don't know enough to really talk about but uh, we had too much stuff to try and squeeze into four and a half hours and there was a point which uh, it it shows a it shows our naivety, David and I's naivety in in making films because neither of us had actually made a a a feature length documentary before, and David hadn't worked on like any documentaries at all. Um, we got to January, and we were looking at our progress so far and we still had so the film's broken into i think six or seven seven chapters i think we'd done four or five chapters uh four chapters i'd say and we were looking at where we're at and suddenly we had a question of well what's our runtime at the moment how are we shaping up and that led to me and chris quickly going through files count uh, adding up the times of each individual segment trying to figure it out and we both came to a similar number which was that we were about three and a half four hours and we still had all this other film left to make and that was a oh shit moment for us because it meant <laughs> we were we were on track to hit about five five and a half hours around time and <laughs> And that then meant that we had to pull back really hard on some of the material we'd already done. We, we were always going to edit it down, but we had to edit down more than we'd realized. And it meant we had to cut some stuff that we thought we were going to be able to fit in the film and shrink down some segments that 
uh, we just couldn't afford to lose. That that it didn't make sense to like not mention military shooters at all. How could you do that? They're so important to the genre. And so it meant that we had a very restricted space to talk about these games. And uh, I ended up writing the segment on the military games, even though I've only played, uh, I think, the earlier military shooters. I played Battlefield 1942 a bunch with some friends. I played uh, I played Call of Duty like 1 and 2, and I've watched people play COD 4, but... Uh, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a big military shooter person. I, I got sick of them very quickly because they're all kind of samey, and, um, and so I was trying my best to not have my own personal views about those games color what I was writing, and use the material that we had to tell as balanced a story as I could in, what was supposed to be, I was told by Chris our editor to try and put it in five minutes, and I'm like, no way, that's not going to happen. And so I, I pushed as, as high as I could on the runtime of the segment. And I wanted to balance the discussion about how these games at their best were kind of brilliant. And there's a reason that they took over the genre, and that's that, that, that they're so cinematic and so immersive that uh, they, they provide a, a beautiful experience for anyone who is, is able to stomach all that uh, immense bloodshed and, and the sounds whirling around you of, of war. Uh, war is a very intense experience, and they they present it really nicely in this sort of Saving Private Ryan style. But they also were so incredibly popular that as often happens in games, they sucked all the air out of the room and suddenly everything was a military shooter. Everything had to be gray and brown and war themed. And in particular, World War II themed for a long time. And then modern war yeah, themed for a while. <laughs> and and we're still suffering the consequences of that dominance now. But we've had the rise of the so-called boomer shooters, which is the the end note we have in the documentary that, well, actually, now finally we're, we're getting this wonderful explosion of creativity again. And it's coming out of the, mostly out of the indie space. And that's really exciting that, that there's new things, that first-person shooters are not so samey anymore. You're not getting a, a little tweak on the same game every year and that's all you can play. Now you've got things that look like Quake, but sudden, but they're in HD. And you've got you've got your military shooters, and you've got things that are uh, like modern uh, renditions of Doom and Rise of the Triad. And you've got things that have the humor of Duke Nukem 3D. And you've got stuff that is totally bloody off the wall, crazy colors flying everywhere, and and it, it's an incredibly intense experience in a completely different way to a military shooter, uh, and so we tried to we tried to to find that balance. And well, it's up to you guys, the audience, to tell us whether we got it right or not, or whether it ended up being compromised by that short runtime of the segment. I guess I I was 
because the documentary is so long, I was curious if there was ever a discussion, uh, like I've seen with similar documentaries, of making it, like, episodic. So it would be, you know, the first episode focuses on the very early 90s FPSs and then, you know, so on and so forth. There was uh, some some very limited discussion about it, but basically it boiled down to that wasn't the business model that we were working right. with. And uh, gotcha. that's something we are shifting within the company because these super docs, as we call them, are ridiculously difficult to make. It's yeah. it, it took us two and a half years to do this one. It's taken similar amount of time for the the movie docs to get made, and that's a tr- just massive chunk of time to dedicate to one project with an entire team working on it as well. Don't forget to no, I don't think any of us were were anywhere close to full time for the project, but. It's hundreds of hours still. It's a, mm-hmm. it's just enormous undertaking and we are only getting paid uh, at each of the campaigns, you know, the, the first crowdfunding campaign, the second one, and then the final campaign where we're doing the pre-orders and then uh, we're doing this, uh, this sales windows things with uh, different influencer partners at the moment. So we are only getting paid at these milestones. And that means that we go like six months without getting any money in. And we've got to find money from other sources and, and balance our, our money. And it's also really, really hard creatively and logistically to make something that long. It, uh, our editor has to have this really powerful computer just to open the project in Premiere Pro because four and a half hours in an in a video editor is going to make any computer chug. That is huge. It, it, I don't know how many hours it would take him to render every export of the entire film, but uh, you can imagine that's pretty huge. The files that yep. we are receiving from him, uh, I, um, I think there was one that was like 100 gig. <laughs> it was huge when it's not when it's not uh, going through a heavier compression algorithm uh, the file sizes are enormous uh, I, I had to figure out how to do the final sound mix for a four and a half hour film and i ended up having to do it while i was on, on holiday in china uh, which was even harder uh, we had 48 interviews to in order to do this four and a half hour movie so just logistically, it's incredibly hard. Creatively, to figure out how to have something that flows for four and a half hours is really hard. Everything about it is a huge slog. And so we're looking now at getting away from doing super docs. And we are actually working on some smaller things. So uh, I am at the moment working with a, a new guy at the company uh, on a horror documentary game horror games documentary it'll be if it gets validated by the audience meaning if we get enough people showing that they're interested in it we will go ahead with this thing that's going to be five episodes and each episode will be about an hour long so we're going to try the episodic thing out and um, but you're back to five hours it's even more technically (laughs) 
Yeah, it ends up being more, but we're able to break it up into into themed chunks, and 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 the logistics of it is a bit easier, and we'll try and work smarter. And uh, the FPS doc, uh, if if there's enough interest in us making more stuff, David is going to be doing a, a, a some sort of expansion packy type thing. So it won't be a a massive film it'll be just here's some more material I, I don't know how long it'll be like an hour or something maybe so we're exploring different ideas and and we might be doing some feature length documentaries that are more focused like on a specific game and we're going to be doing some some book projects and we're trying to we're trying out different ideas for things that'll be able to get done in six months or 12 months or 18 months instead of two and a half years yeah i mean you're talking about the logistics and i was thinking you know like uh, i feel like you think about these things as like piecing them together once everything's in place but the initial planning stage for something like this must be a nightmare too because how do you pace something that's four and a half hours how do you <laughs> How do you build a story that runs through four and a half hours for a documentary like this and have it have some kind of thesis and, uh, you know, and then you get to the point of, well, now we have this footage, now we have these interviews to all piece together. So it's just sort of like uh, a massive challenge all the way through. Yeah. Uh, so that's why what we did was I wrote a synopsis that was uh, something like a hundred games in it that was covering the whole history of FPS games from 1973 to the modern day. And that was the starting point. So I, I we had this you know, year by year, game by game thing going on. And I came up with ideas for features that I called breakout segments. And uh, that was, that was our, sort of design doc for the film that we then throw out once we finished all the interviews and, and we start figuring out, well, how do we actually make this thing using the ideas that were in that synopsis? And David decided to break it into chapters, but the sort of slightly themed chapters, but uh, still sticking with the chronology wherever we're able to, as much as we can, we had to jump a little bit in the timeline back and forth, but we tried to minimize that so that you get that sense of the evolution of the genre. And anything beyond that, it's just we figure it out as we go. We have a rough idea of the the fact that it it's beginning with things being very primitive and it's ex- technology is very exciting and people are just doing everything that, has never been done before. So it's all innovative at the beginning. And then the genre starts to get more and more codified. And then you get to around the late nineties, sort of half-life through to Halo. You've get, you've got this period of uh, innovation happening again, where the, the way the games play is essentially the same thing, but they are, showing us different directions that the genre can go. Half-Life is showing, well, you can actually do stories with FPS games. You just have to do it in this sort of more environmental way. And and Halo's offering uh, a more cinematic way forward for the the arena-style thing where you've got this 
really involved story going on. Uh, and, and Deus Ex is Deus Ex and System Shock before that and System Shock 2 and so on. They're saying, well, actually shooting doesn't even have to really be important here. We, we're going to make a game where you don't have to shoot at all if you don't want to. And then from there, it's the uh, the very fast run through that the, the 10, 15 years after that of uh, here are the big important things. And, and we wanted, and we did sort of intentionally have the pacing speed up towards the end because that's how it felt following the genre. I think that uh, there weren't as many new games coming out, but uh, the the pace of the evolution was uh, was very very quick in the early two thousands. Things were changing really really fast. And then from there, uh, the games themselves were paced in a, in a different kind of fast way to the way they were in the 90s. Um, and it, it just it felt like there was Call of Duty everywhere, is, uh, I guess, where I'm, where I'm going there. Um, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and if Call of Duty is everywhere, then, then it's, it's all around you. And so we want to we maintain that pace through. And then you get to Boomer Shooters, which are... Uh, mostly extraordinarily fast because they're taking the fast-paced gameplay style of the 90s and combining it with the modern technology that we have that allows them to go even faster uh, in super high-D, uh, high-definition graphics. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to look at the path that FPS games took because, um, like, Halo is a very natural evolution of arena shooters um, and the multiplayer is still structured around arena mechanics of like uh power weapon control and area control and you know has a lot of the same game types like capture the flag and and things like that and then call of duty kind of came along and it sort of restructured uh multiplayer into being like obviously it brought loadouts in which was probably one of the big things but also sprint as something that you fundamentally needed to have in an fps uh this element of like quote unquote realism in in shooting there's aim down sights as a major part of it so like aim down sights sprint and and loadouts pretty much became you have to have these in your game <laughs> because call of duty has it in it uh and you know battlefield obviously did loadouts in its own way and and had the sprint mechanic and it's it's modern too so these two like titans uh in the industry came around at, at the same time and took unique spins on, on the same things, but they're elements that like, I mean, even Halo ended up having to adopt sprint and loadouts with, with Halo Reach and then Halo 4 and, and every game after it. Because it just became like, if you're an FPS and you don't have sprint, you feel old. Like it feels like an old game. Uh, <laughs> and then... I suppose these days we've seen, like, I feel like Doom 2016, it, it began with Wolvenstein, I feel like, which brought things back to, like, a, well, you can you can still build a shooter structured around the concept of, like, standing and shooting, like, uh, and it has sprint and things like that as well in it, I think, Wolvenstein, but uh, then Doom 2016 comes out and it's, it's stripped back again, like, further back to what Quake was like. 
uh, and that allowed Doom Eternal to flourish into what it is, and Doom Eternal really, I think, has shown, like, you can still make the combat feel, like, tactical in the sense of, like, the constant decision-making you have to make, but you don't have to be, like, entrenched in realism uh, as the core element of your gameplay. Like, sometimes 100% focus on gameplay is more important than uh, making things, you know, like, fully focused on realism in the in the shooting mechanics, like something like Armor 3 or whatever, you know. Uh, so I think that's really opened up the doors for for boomer shooters to come out, and, like, hopefully... Uh, like, personally, as someone who likes Call of Duty and Battlefield, I'd like to see both genres flourish separately. Uh, but, you know, obviously it, nah. it is difficult for um for any media to not naturally navigate towards the thing that's going to make the most money. So uh, we'll see, I guess, <laughs> what happens to the genre. I'd be cool with seeing the Call of Duty and Battlefield-style FPS just kind of get sweeped under the rug, and we just try to forget about that dark time <laughs> in our history. <laughs> we try to forget about the death of the single-player campaign. And, <laughs> you know, what? It, it is interesting. The thing that it looks like to me in retrospect is that as the FPS was maturing and evolving, we kind of started to figure out with modern technology, as Richard was saying, how to make these things just look incredibly cinematic and very believable and just really capture somebody's uh, immersivity in this experience. And we kind of stopped being concerned with gameplay mechanical improvements and wacky new ideas and more so all of our focus was on fidelity and sort of the believability of the experience. And I was just watching, this is just a little bit off the topic, I'm so sorry, but I swear I'll swing it back, but I was just watching Sakurai on YouTube, and I, I forget the other gentleman's name, but they were playing these retro uh, arcade games and SNES games uh, against each other to see you know who would die first, and then they'd move on to the next game. And some of these games that came out in the 80s, they just have the most incredible mechanics the most creative ideas they switch to a new game and it's just like how did they think of that stuff at the time and i feel like the main motivator behind that is graphically there just wasn't much to offer so you're trying to make an experience as fun as possible and then as the technology gets better and you're able to make things prettier some some companies some studios some genres in my opinion seem to be less interested and making things very dynamic and wacky and creative and fun. And so I think that the motivator behind indie games coming out now with these, these quote-unquote boomer shooters, these movement shooters, and we're seeing this inventiveness again, is I think that there's no budget required for fun. There's a budget required for a certain level of uh, graphical fidelity and, uh, and cinematic design. But there's no amount of money that you need to make an experience fun. So these indie devs can just throw all that cinematic wartime bullshit away, in my opinion, <laughs> and just focus on like, you know, what's a wacky, crazy gun we can put in this game? Like, what's a cool movement mechanic we can have? And we're seeing all these grappling hook 
shooter games now and you're running along the walls and and we're having a good time so i think we're kind of in the 70s right now where we're we're really everything's colorful and fun and free and open anyway i'm really excited for it but um i guess my question <laughs> call them hippie shooters <laughs> <laughs> well i, I do yeah. think also that the major element for me in terms of like why um why the genre went the way it did like is multiplayer became the focus instead like yeah i mean halo made yeah yeah exactly like halo made console multiplayer function incredibly well with the way it built its lobbies and all of these things and call of duty built on that again and then obviously counter-strike and and stuff like that and then like the the campaigns got shorter for these games and they got less interesting and less involved like you play a call of duty campaign and like call of duty 4 and one way 2 had like pretty decent stories you could kind of trek through and they were pretty fun but the later call of duties and and the battlefields were just clearly they were just tacking these on to the multiplayer that was actually going to sell the game and yeah once all the money like uh, was coming from the multiplayer elements, it's like, well, like, I mean, most of them don't even come with a a single player anymore. Like, I think, like, Battlefield 5 doesn't even have a single player. Battlefield 1. So, you know, they just stop yeah. bothering at a certain point. You you buy the game now and you just immediately hop into a multiplayer lobby. That's That's what you're there to do. So it almost feels less like we're even designing games and they're just kicking out some environments and some basic shooting mechanics, and then they're like, okay, go have fun in your little sandbox. Well, okay, let's not, like... <laughs> I <don't, laughs> I'm I exaggerating, <laughs> but it's, like, you know, it's, there's all, a less All it means experience. is that the focus of level design becomes structured around multiplayer map design, which is difficult in completely different ways, obviously. Like, oh, it's absolutely. structured around balance and you know all these other elements like symmetry versus asymmetry and there's a lot that goes into multiplayer level design obviously but uh i do think that like i think it's coming back to a point like doom doom 2016 woman sign i think well it's bethesda i guess but it has really been in the last 10 years propping up the triple a fps like single player experience uh, in a lot of ways and uh, doom eternal and doom 2016 were just such such breaths of fresh air in terms of gameplay from AAA devs uh and i keep making that <laughs> concession because you know there's obviously been double a devs and uh you know small indie fps's out there that have been continually trying to like put out good single player experiences but unfortunately i think like the AAA games are the ones that are, they need to set the examples uh, so that everyone else will follow at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and the the Call of Duty devs and the Battlefield devs, they are motivated to, to stick with the multiplayer world because they can monetize that. They can, they can have you pay for all these fancy little prestige weapons and and some extra items to give you an edge on the on the battlefield as it were and 
that nickel and diming to get extra money from you can't really be done in single player, which is itself something that you're probably only going to play once, whereas a multiplayer level you're going to play hundreds if not thousands of times once you like the game. Single player you play once, and it's an enormous uh, effort for a developer to build a single player campaign and make all these assets that are only going to be seen once and heard once and it mm-hmm. just it it's way easier and and this is something that's it's not unique to FPS games this is across all of AAA gaming this is why uh, outside of like open world games we've had a shift towards multiplayer focus yeah if if you, if you look at sports games and you know, Madden and, and FIFA and stuff they or EA Sports FC stupid name they they do <laughs> yeah <laughs> they do this stuff now like FIFA Ultimate Team or would it, just Ultimate Team I guess it is now that it's not called FIFA anymore uh, that earns EA something like a billion dollars a year in revenue it's a it's a double figure percentage of their revenue and that's a a multiplayer only mode effectively and it's the same with Call of Duty they make so much money on Call of Duty Mobile which is entirely free to play except that it's got all these microtransactions to uh, to get you to pay for an advantage when you're playing or for some cosmetic thing because you want to look more unique. It's, you know, I've never really understood that, but people really seem to care about how their character looks and they'll pay for the privilege of getting something that makes them a little bit more unique. I agree it's a sickness. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, there's no competing with games as a service. You just, you can't do it, financially speaking. It's why sell one copy of your game when you can sell that copy of your game and also make money microtransactionally or just lean into the microtransactions and you're going to make way, way, way more money. And uh, I got a little too excited, I guess, a few minutes ago. But the thing that is interesting to me that I'm trying to say is that I think there's less of a bump in the road to get over in designing a fun experience if you can put some of the onus on the players to create fun. I think it's easier to make a a multiplayer game that's fun than it is to design a single player game that's fun because you can kind of do anything with your buddies and and you can have a great time. You just kind of emergent mechanics show up through human behavior. So I think there's also an impetus to lead into these multiplayer designs because you just don't have to do that much from an innovation perspective, a design perspective. You just give your player base some clear-cut mechanics. They don't have to be very complicated. And then you just let them go at each other. And, and it'll be fun. Just human competitiveness comes into play and you know, uh, people trying to troll other players. And there's just tons of avenues for fun that appear that have nothing to do with your intentional design behind the game. So I think there's that too. But also credit where credit is due. I think another reason that, you know, Call of Duty is going to keep leaning into multiplayer is because they do it really, really well. You know, like they're kind of the gold standard for that sort of experience. And and they do well, deserve to be. So like they did it really well for a long time. And then they did it really badly for like 10 years. And now they're back <laughs> to doing it pretty well. But <laughs> There was a period where, like, people didn't want to touch a Call of Duty game. Like, Call of Duty Ghosts and and that whole period with the wall running, I think they would be happy if everybody forgot those games existed. (laughs) Well, as long as they're doing the right thing now, 
you know credit where credit is due i guess <laughs> and once the yeah credit where credit is due 15 years apart from when they began but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's, interesting. it's interesting that you talk about, like, I, I do think that, that the gamers, you know, uh, I'm using this term deliberately in a semi-derogatory way, um, the gamers are, are a little bit to blame in terms of, I do think that people these days are absolutely obsessed with replayability as a massive buzzword, where... Even, you know, like your your Souls-like or whatever RPG that you're playing. All of these games, you need to be able to, even if it's a single-player title, you've got to be able to play through that game ten times and it'd be a different experience every time for people. Otherwise, it's like, well, this game doesn't have the replayability of, like, you know, Skyrim that I sank 500 hours into or whatever. <laughs> and these I, I... totally unfair comparisons, you know. I I always love it when I see someone share a picture of a review on Steam and they're saying, it's like a one-star review and they're saying, this is the worst game ever and they spend the next 500 words bitching about it, but it says playtime, 1,000 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surely you've got your value out of this thing. Uh, so I, I have to believe that some percentage of those are just comedians. But I think definitely... a lot of them are jokes. I've seen ones where they legitimately have like 6,000 hours in the game and they'll be like, <laughs> yeah. terrible game, do not buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. I, I'm interested in, so Richard, you had said that, you know, you've played a lot of FPS games, of course, but it's maybe not your favorite genre yeah. in the world. So what sort of effect does that have on your motivation and working on a documentary like this that's exclusively about FPS games, is that impacting it at all? Or is your interest in the history of the thing enough to, to get you through it, even if you're not that interested in the subject matter? I, I think that yeah, my, my interest in the, in the history and particularly the, the, the technology of it was enough to keep me motivated and passionate. And also there are, there are games in the genre that I love. And so getting to... Uh, help make those segments on those games is great getting to capture footage on games that i love and and to uh, write the questions for the interviews and, and work with david on the script that was all great but uh, i think fps games have driven the evolution of games technology and to an extent technology in general way more than anything else over the past what 30 years since since Wolfenstein 3D and Doom really when when the id guys came up with this way to have really fast paced pseudo 3D action on the screen that that hadn't been done before to have a first person game that is really fast paced like an arcade game no one had done that. And then you go forward a few years and Carmack is figuring out some way to do the same thing with proper full 3D on Quake. And Quake is incredibly fast. And then he starts working with graphics cards makers on even fancier 3D graphics stuff with like Quake 3 and, uh, and, and beyond that. And uh, Carmack kind of drove a lot of the 3D graphics revolution 
And that is all really interesting. And to see some of the other innovations that have come out of FPS games and uh, expanded to all, almost all genres of games and to, to know that something like Unreal Engine started as just the engine for the game Unreal and now thousands of games are in development for it at, at any one time across pretty much every genre and this along with unity unless unity completely implodes with the stupidity of their recent mistake <laughs> uh are used everywhere and not even just in games they're used in filmmakers use them education sector uses them engineers use them these game engines are used for anything that in that requires real-time 3d graphics and they started well, Unreal started as a first-person shooter engine. Unity started as like a, a 3D puzzle game. I think uh, it was a it was a Mac game that failed commercially, and the developers realized that they had a really great engine on their hands, so they pivoted to focusing on building an engine. So, I mean, to ask a more mundane question, what other games do you actually play? Like, what genres do you play outside of FPS? So, I love point-and-click adventure games. Uh, I I like open-world games with the caveat that I don't really like the Ubisoft collect-a-thon style of open-world. Uh, uh, I I play a lot of old games. Uh, if, uh, if we had... If this were a video podcast, you'd see that behind me I have... I have a lot of game boxes uh, on my wall, uh, on bookshelf behind me. Uh, I'm a big fan of classic Tomb Raider games. Uh, real-time strategy I used to like a lot. And uh, soccer, or football uh, to most of the world, but I guess soccer to you guys. Uh, I love playing soccer games, and uh, I've spent God knows how many hours playing the Football Manager series, and uh, it used to be way into the Pro Evolution soccer games back in the PS2 days. Uh, so uh, I play across a really broad range of genres, but that would pretty much encapsulate the stuff I like the most. It's interesting to me to hear that you like, uh, you know, football games, like presumably FIFA and stuff as well, if you're playing Pro Evolution, I would imagine. But because uh, <laughs> you were talking about how Call of Duty was everywhere and releasing the same kinds of games every year, but you know, obviously FIFA and Pro Evo <laughs> releasing yeah. the same. It'll be like, here are like seven extra Blades of Grass this year, guys. Are you, are you excited <laughs> to play FIFA 08 over FIFA 07? I, I don't... Yeah. But to be fair... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I don't think there's been a good FIFA game in over a decade, or about a decade. Uh, they had a really good run in the PS3, uh, Xbox 360 era, and then ultimate team started to take over and uh what made the new ones uh not as good in your opinion then they they played really fast and uh not in a way that feels right uh fifa has always looked like football at at first glance uh you just you see a few seconds of it on the tv and it's wow this is football and it sounds like football because the commentary is great as well but then it's not, and it falls into an uncanny valley for me because 
the controls don't feel good. Uh, I find uh, the, the the players don't feel natural the way they move. The the way that the ball isn't quite right. Uh, the the movement and and tactics uh, are a little bit off. Uh, the the game design has shifted towards uh, a more arcadey style for the the people who play Ultimate Team, and don't really care that much about uh, playing beautiful football. And and I I loved the 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 heyday of the Pro Evo games when uh, they were making things that uh, really felt like playing football uh, to to anyone who has enough technique to 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 know uh, how how to play football at a good level uh, they they felt like that and uh, they weren't full of craft like the FIFA games is pro evo still around or was it consumed it's become e football and it is a disaster uh, Konami decided <laughs> that they should chase after the ultimate team money because Konami doesn't know what they're doing anymore. And they threw away what had been a good run of games uh, that came before it, where they seemed like they were sort of maybe figuring out how to make good football games again. And they started again under a new name and, uh, has some sort of audience it's free to play uh i I think it's making some money for them but uh, it's sort of a disaster and it's full of really really hilarious bugs like players who who will uh turn into these freakish monsters because (laughs) (laughs) that sounds great (laughs) because of graphics bugs (laughs) that should be a feature in my opinion (laughs) <laughs> it's got really bad graphics bugs. You should be able to mutate your players slowly <laughs> over the course of the campaign, your football campaign. See, now that's a game idea. Football manager, but you slowly spike the player's Gatorade with various chemicals to mutate them into horrific creatures that <laughs> play football at an amazing rate. So rather than play the modern football games, I mainly played that stuff from about 15 years ago and 20 years ago. Yeah. I feel like once you nail a soccer game, there's no you don't need to do another one because you like you've once you've accurately recreated the soccer experience virtually, where do you go from there? Yeah, you know, exactly. You're kind of, do you do you, the innovation? It, it's the issue that any any simulation type thing faces where where they're recreating something from reality. Once you make a great experience, all you can do is add more detail and you, you you sort of you can shift around things to try and somehow make it a tiny bit better but inevitably you're going to make it worse because the more you fiddle with something that's that feels perfect the more it's not going to be and that's sort of what konami faced with the pro evo games so uh when they got to about 2004 i think it was or 2005 maybe uh they they had pro evolution soccer 5 uh, which is like winning 11 9 maybe i i forget the japanese and american numbering but uh, that game for me and many others is the best soccer game ever made and then the following year 
they started doing the Xbox 360 versions. And the, the PS2 versions were still brilliant for until they stopped releasing them. But the Xbox versions, they, they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get it right, and they struggled. And that allowed FIFA to take over the genre again uh, just after Pro Evo had climbed to the top. And Konami was sort of stuck. They could have kept making basically the same game over and over and people would have just slaughtered them for making the same game again and again. But they had something that already felt perfect. All they needed to do was make the graphics nicer. I feel like they should have just uh, gotten Hideo Kojima to write the next <laughs> the next FIFA Pro soccer Evo, game. Yeah. He just writes Pro <laughs> Evo for Konami while he was still working there, obviously. Imagine a Death Stranding style story. <laughs> Just imagine what he would do with something that's sports themed. It would be really cool to see him take on sport and and come up with some elaborate story related to a sports game. That would be uh that you, there's that one I this I haven't played this one, which is a shame because uh, I think it's super giant and they're so fantastic. They did Hades, and they had a game that was a sports game, but uh. Like I'm using the term loosely. Like it's all fantasy. Oh my god, I I know so little about this game, but my understanding is that it would have been a story heavy uh game revolving around this like fantasy sport that you're playing that's kind of like basketballish or something. But anyway, like I, I've been meaning to play that for a while because I would I would love to because sports games are fun. The mechanics are fun. You know, if going back and playing an old hockey game on the PS2, it's fun to just just label some guy and send him into the boards, right? There's there's fun to be had there uh, without risking getting CTE from doing it in real life. Uh, but it'd be nice to just see it get more gamified. Like, why not? Let's just run with yeah. it. Yeah, it's know? interesting that, that didn't happen more, right? Because, like, they had, like, NBA Jam back in the day, and they had, yeah. like, that Mario Superstar Strikers. They, they did that in, like, Mario Tennis. Like, Nintendo does it a little bit. Uh, but then every other genre is like, which I understand, obviously, but it's like, how can we make golf as much like golf in real life as possible? And it's like, I don't know. There should be p the part where you have to like destroy a bunch of the natural world to create these golf courses. But it's never <laughs> in the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So first of all, the game I was thinking of is called Pyre, which I've heard great things about. Haven't played it, but just if, for anybody who would be interested in a game that sounds like that, it's P-Y-R-E. It's Pyre. Um, I was watching a buddy of mine play the newest hockey game that just came out on his Xbox Series S or whatever, and I don't respect it enough to look up which hockey game it was. It doesn't matter. It's terrible. <laughs> but the the drive for realism is just comical now, where I'm watching him play this game, and he's playing in a game mode that I think is called Pro Mode or, or Career Mode or something like that, where in the old hockey games, you would play as your whole team. So you're playing the whole time. The yeah. second somebody gets a puck, the puck, you're controlling that player, right? In this mode in this game, he only controls one guy. So there are long stretches of the game where he never gets the puck and he's <laughs> not doing anything. And then also, like, anytime someone takes a shot at net, the goalie freezes the puck and then the game cuts to a menu and then there's a little cutscene, and then you have to drop the puck again and start the round. And it's just happening every few seconds. It's like watching football where they just, they're stopping play constantly 
And I'm sitting on the couch watching them play this game. And I'm like, how are you having fun right now? They're essentially cutscening you every few seconds in this game. And when you're playing it, you're not even playing half the time because your guy doesn't have the puck. <laughs> That's just, so like, I don't funny. understand. It's that's so wild to see. That 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 mode uh, effectively in sports games uh, goes back to, I think it was Madden that did it around 2003 or four. Uh, they called it Be a Pro, I think. And it, it then spread across all the EA and 2K sports games. They all started to do oh, it. Wow. And Konami did, it, did their version as well in, in Pro Evo. And uh, so in any of these team sports simulations, there, there tends to be a mode where you can be this one person, you role play them, and you are trying to play their position as well as possible. And uh, how much fun you have will depend on how much of a, a fan you are of that sport and how much you enjoy role playing in that role and also what position you're playing because... Some positions you're going to spend a lot more time just standing around uh, jogging or sliding from place to place. And <laughs> uh, there are going to be other other positions where you're always in the thick of it. So you know, maybe you don't want to play a goalkeeper and, unless you're on a crap team. Uh, but it, it might be fun being someone who's sort of <laughs> playing a more midfield position where you're always in the thick of it. You can always be involved in, in everything happening. Uh, you're and, playing as like a non-starting... Yeah. <laughs> like player who's just on the bench for like 45 minutes of the game and then they bring you on at the end as like a token five minutes yeah, yeah. Like, so well, in in some of the soccer games that that can actually happen you don't get picked and you i think you can press a, <laughs> you can press a button to to skip until when you get brought on or you can just yes. watch the gameplay you can just I love this. I, I love this. The more I hear about it, actually, it's yeah. so fucking ridiculous that I love that was it. happening. And uh, yeah, Buddy was playing, and and he was like, "I wanted to play center, but they won't let me. I have to play like left wing because <laughs> my character is not good enough to play center." And I'm like, "You don't get to choose." And then he'd get yeah. fouled, right? Uh, there'd be a they'd call a penalty, so they're going into a power play, and he would get pulled off the ice. For the power play, this team was like, "We don't want you playing the power play. You're not good enough." So he'd just have to watch the power that play. That is so funny. And then he goes, like, he goes home and complains to his wife in the game, like, "Oh, they took me off again." And you have like dialogue options. Yeah, I would play it's that. Game. Yeah, I there should be more innovation. I haven't. I, this is another one I haven't played yet, but I'm excited to try it soon. It's called Tape to Tape, and it's a hockey roguelite. <laughs> so you're just you're managing your hockey team but you're getting kind of like i guess random abilities like you can slap shot the puck off a player's face and into the goal uh, sounds cool so like yeah that that kind of stuff, like let's just have fun you know like I, I would love to see more of these sports games come out and just really lean into hey it's not real it's not a real sport we can do whatever we yeah. want it's a video game but it's interesting to hear you talk about the role playing uh concept of it like that must be what's going on because otherwise i'm sitting i'm baffled by the appeal of this be a pro game mode right but if it's just about kind of being in character and yeah playing and, the and, part. and growing your character just like in any rpg your stats will improve over time and different games will implement that in different ways some of them will some of them do it as a as you're playing the match and you use these skills uh if you effectively use them then your skills go up so you you successfully make a pass or you score a goal 
then you have the relevant ability get increased. Other games will do it as like you just you get a bunch of points that you can spend after the match to level up your character. That's fascinating. That is such a different world from anything <laughs> I could ever enjoy. <laughs> it is funny though to think about this like overarching concept in video games of like uh this graph of like realism and fun. Uh yeah. you know, of like how with well at least from my perspective with something like call of duty the more realistic that game got uh it it hurts the campaign experience like the single player experience in in a number of different ways in terms of like well now your enemy variety is reduced because you can't have these wacky enemies because you're you're a real soldier in a military situation you're fighting other men uh, you know you're fighting other human beings so now your enemy variety is reduced all the way down to, well, we can give them different weapons, you know. Yeah. But the ARs have to function in similar ways because uh, in the multiplayer, <laughs> they're built to be balanced. So, you know, damage numbers are similar. They function in similar ways. Same with all the pistols and the sniper rifles and things. So we don't want to do a whole separate sense of set of like campaign balancing for weapons. So let's keep them like within the same realm so you end up with like very limited options in terms of those kinds of elements uh in, in a campaign um and then i feel like you have other things that take it more in the simulator direction like armor 3 uh which took it all the way to like you know obviously it's meant to be as close to like the military experience as possible there's that other game squad as well uh which is similar and they've I, I, it's interesting how I feel like they've there's like a bit of a feedback loop of like they've fed back into the AAA experience because I mean Armor 3 is obviously around AAA, maybe AA uh, but obviously that helped to birth like you know, DayZ came from Armor 3 uh, and then elements from Armor 3 were obviously in DayZ and then became a part of PUBG and then PUBG has then <laughs> brought those elements into the larger, uh, you know, like the, the larger experience of games like Apex and everything has brought those elements in all these Battle Royale games of like leaning mechanics, which I think are fantastic for FPS, like add dynamism to gameplay. Um, and a lot of other like breaking down of FPS mechanics, like changing to single fire burst fire full auto all these types of like small things that you can add into the game so it, i i don't necessarily think that realism is always bad for gameplay but i think there was a period where it was perhaps bad for fps games i for one prefer the the old days and i suppose the new days now of boomer shooters are doing it although uh, i i like the lo-fi graphics of the old days where you've got you know, demons spitting fireballs at you and and all these weird and wacky monsters come out of nowhere. They've all they've all got different patterns and, and weird things that they do that, that's totally unique and they all look so uh so much unlike each other, which is cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a an interesting trend. Uh I'm not super well versed in these in these newest boomer shooters, but I've, you know, I've been watching some playthroughs of some of them. And I'm seeing this interesting thing take place where 
they're kind of trying to do something more doomy, more quakey, and just cranking the speed up as high as it'll go, right? Which is fun. You know, it's fun to move fast. But I think a really interesting thing about Doom's design in the FPS space, for example, is that, yeah, you move wicked quick, but the monsters don't and the projectiles don't. Mm. So your speed is sort of this, your tool for your self-defense. And you can get into these scenarios, especially in these custom maps for these games where like Doom's not a bullet hell game, but it really feels like it sometimes where there's just projectiles everywhere and you're weaving through them because you're faster than everything. And in these new boomer shooters, I kind of see like, yeah, the player character's really fast, but they're making all the enemies really fast too. And they're making all the projectiles really fast. Mm. So in essence, kind of nothing's fast anymore because everything's going the same speed. Yeah. So it doesn't have that dynamism anymore, that's, that's, which I'm, I'm finding fascinating. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, now that you mention it, I think that's why I bounced off of Dusk. Uh, it, was, mm-hmm. it, it, it was really fast just everywhere, and, and I, I found that overwhelming, that the enemies are moving so quickly, and I'm moving so quickly, and there's just too much going on, and I'd rather be playing the original Quake instead the game that, that inspired <laughs> yeah. it i'd rather be playing quake or, or marathon like you know, being a, a mac guy growing up uh, where that was the same thing you're faster than the enemies you can sort of run around the fireballs and dance between them as they're getting thrown at you yeah exactly the, the speed is a justifiable game mechanic in those games whereas in some of these modern boomer shooters since everything is really fast it sort of more feels like it's just testing your reflexes as you age and just kind of gatekeeping. Like you're too old and slow to be playing this game. Like there's no reason you couldn't peel back the speed on everything by 20%. And it's it's exactly the same, right? So you don't have that experience so much in Doom where you need your speed to be a certain amount more than the monsters and the projectiles to achieve the gameplay that Doom is so beloved for and and, you know, quake to a similar degree. So... I kind of I'm always fascinated by this idea that we are trying our best to learn from the people who came before us, the games who came before us, and sometimes learning the wrong lessons, examining things in, in maybe not the most appropriate way. And that to me is kind of a perfect example, at least to my taste, where it's we're looking back at these games and we're saying, look how much faster they were. Therefore, we need to do faster games and just sort of missing the point of what was fast and why. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I I think, I mean, obviously, I don't want to just like shit all over Brutal Doom or whatever. I think that's been done enough. But uh, Brutal Doom is sort of an example to me of of missing the point of Doom <laughs> in a lot of ways as well, just because you know that focus on the gore elements and and that type of stuff, which which I never really thought of as being a major part of Doom. Um, but it's interesting how though like brutal doom has spilled over into what a lot of boomer shooters now are kind of taking as well this is what the natural evolution of a game like doom would have been i suppose which again like to my taste as you put it uh i don't know if i 100 percent think that is the case yeah i'm suspicious i think brutal doom is so so fun for about 15 minutes and then i'm kind of done with it because it just doesn't, it doesn't have that depth of balance that Doom has. Or at least the maps that I was playing Brutal Doom on obviously weren't designed for Brutal Doom. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe that's that's skewing the experience a lot. But I agree with you. That's that true. The juice is great, and it's fun to just watch guys just explode, you know? And uh, so it's very satisfying. But, yeah, the gameplay isn't there as much. But I don't know if that's the fault of the mod or the fault of the maps that I'm playing the mod for. But, um, but yeah, I agree with what you're saying, I guess, is, is ultimately uh, my point there. Um. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's also the like the power fantasy mentality, which... To me, Doom is always, like, one guy against it all, and, uh, you know, you're not necessarily, like, you're not meant to just be crushing everything in your path, which obviously a lot of other FPSs sort of take that on to be the main thing. Even though Doom guy is faster than everything, and, you know, <laughs> if you're playing continuous, you probably are crushing everything in your path, but, but you know. I, uh, I wanted to throw another question over to Richard. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we just very briefly touched on Half Life and the totally unique way that they went about delivering their narrative in Half Life, right? So groundbreaking, uh, so intriguing, so nice to not just have these cutscenes and the story kind of shoehorned in. You really felt like you're just walking around uh, Black Mesa. And is that what it was? It's Black Mesa, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and watching the story unfold around you. NPCs are just talking. You can just walk away from them while they're talking. Uh, so you obviously, uh, you're writing as well. You're playing FPS games. Uh, is that something that kind of grips you, interests you? Do you have strong opinions on narrative elements in FPS games? Because obviously you can go back to Doom. There just is no story, essentially. You can go to Half-Life where the story is happening around you, and you can go to Halo where it's much more like the modern style where there's movie cutscenes and then gameplay in between. Does do any of those rub you more like better than others, or can you speak to that at all? This is a terrible question. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and and there's also like the the marathon style, which was and uh and uh, the original system shock did it did it pretty much the same way where you're just you're reading huge chunks of text and marathon had terminals everywhere and you can if you want to you can read uh, this tremendous amount of lore that's been prepared for the game uh, or you can just yep, ignore it and right. play a shooter but i think i yeah, prefer the bioshock the, yeah audio the logs, audio logs. Yep. i prefer the the half-life style and uh particularly how it was done in Portal, I thought was great. Now I know Portal is, is like only a couple of characters. It's, it's you and GLaDOS and the companion cube. It's, that's basically it for the characterizations and, and maybe the turrets you could think of as characters. But uh, that, that Valve style, I, I, I really like. The, the, the world feels more alive, I, I find, doing it that way. And uh, I can dip in and out of the story as much as I want. Um, and that feels way more immersive and cinematic to me in a game than playing a bunch of stuff and then there's a cutscene or there's a scripted event and you've, you're getting your hand held through this thing. That's not really what games are best at. Games are best at you being in control, you taking the lead. Yeah, any any moment in a game where I can kind of decide, oh, this is this is a good time to go to the bathroom right now. <laughs> I feel like just shouldn't be in the game. 
you know, if we can design around those and take them out. Cause I do want to just be, I want to be immersed and I want to be pulled through the whole experience. And yeah, portals, another great example of that, of just the stories just naturally unfolding around you. If you're listening and it's not getting in the way of the experience seamlessly woven into it. And that just must be harder to do. But I, in my opinion, I think that's so worth it. I, I think it really pays dividends for me. Like it's, it's a noticeably better experience. It's not something I passively appreciate. It's something I actively am just enamored with when a game does that for me. I, I think it's so great. I think I don't mind like the cutscene structure as much, but I really hate it when the context is that I'm meant to be in control of my character and it's, and I'm not. Like, where they make you slow walk through things, or, you know, the classic one we keep bringing up of, like, Captain Price really wants you to breach a fucking door, and he's like, all right, soap, (laughs) we're going into this door, and we're gonna breach, and then, like, you're just standing there while, like, all this shit happens, and and your stupid man is walking at, like, snail pace. That kind of stuff. It's like, look, Dev, if you want me to look at the skybox, like... I'll, I might look at it naturally, I might not, but don't, like, force me to look at it through some dumb scripted event when I'm supposed to be controlling my character, but, you know, if there's a cutscene, I'm happy to sit there and watch it as, like, a little break between gameplay as long as it's not happening constantly. The the way they do it in in the Valve games is really masterful because it is incredibly hard as a designer to let your players have control over everything they're doing but direct their attention where you want them to direct it at the moment that you need them to see or hear that thing because people they do what they want to do and and they're going to be staring into the corner and looking down and you need them to be looking up in the completely opposite direction and Otherwise, they're gonna they're gonna be a bit lost. And and Half Life and Half Life Two Portal, they all managed to do it really, really well. And very few games not made by Valve do it well. I do think also like if you give a player the opportunity, they might just deliberately not look at the thing that you want them to look at, just because yeah. they can. You know. And and sometimes <laughs> it's funny, like in Half Life, for for example, you're getting a bunch of story from a scientist, and you go and stand behind him, and you point your gun at his head, just just to <laughs> just to mess with things, or, or you stand facing away from him while he's talking to you, just because you can. You 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 walk away from him because you can, and that is a it, that, that that's something that's I think very natural to do as gamers, as people who love games, because we are like we want to push the boundaries. We want to see what the thing will allow us to do. We don't actually want to kill everyone who's talking to us, but we want to see if the game will let us shoot this guy yeah. who's giving us information. Just just to see if it's possible, and and if it if it is, then we'll know. Okay, next time we actually do want to listen to him then we better not shoot him (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can break character as the player right there's there's a real i think that's a that's an obstacle a really interesting problem that you have to deal with in the writing because yeah your player wants to break character just to push the boundaries and there's a a dissonance that happens and might be affecting their immersion and they're believing the scene where they're being told by the npcs oh you're so and so 
you want to do this, you're going to do this, you're a hero, and you're just going around killing everybody, right? So it's it's harder to take it seriously almost, but I don't know. I just find it endlessly fascinating. Well, there's just like a... I mean, when you're making like a big game with a lot of money behind it, there must be such a fear of non-linearity in design in a lot of ways. Um, and like... I mean, recently I was playing Sea of Stars, which it's like a an RPG very heavily influenced by Chrono Trigger and stuff. Came out recently. Beautiful game, very fun uh, in a lot of respects, and and like I really enjoyed what I've played of it. Uh, but it is very linear. Like they don't let you over level, like and grind up and get stronger than you're supposed to be. And the story wants you to go here, you have to go there, there aren't a lot of, like, off-shooting, branching paths, things like that. Um, which is fine. It doesn't bother me too much, but, you know, like, I feel like a lot of older games, like Breath of Fire 2, or like, or like Chrono Trigger, like, you could grind up and get way more powerful than you were meant to be. Uh, and, you know, trivialize the entire game for yourself if you really wanted to spend your time doing that. But these days, it's, uh, Game devs are more aware of what gamers are capable of doing, I think, and a lot of the time they're constantly focused on uh, how can we stop the player from doing that. <laughs> Wait, can you grind up in Chrono Trigger? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised to hear that. I remember getting Luminaire in uh, Magus's Castle. For anyone who's played, they know that that's absolutely a ridiculous amount of grind, <laughs> but it's like the final <laughs> spell you can get as Chrono. And I had it at a point where you were supposed to be like, you know, four or five spells before getting it or something. I had a buddy who, uh, as soon as he unlocked the little fishing mechanic in Dark Cloud on the PS2, he just fished in the first village for days, like real life <laughs> days, not in game days, until he had the best sword you could possibly get in the game just by getting like diamonds and stuff from trading in the fish. And uh, and then he stopped playing the game before he made it to the second village Zeus board. Yeah, like <laughs> you can't underestimate like players' ability to ruin a game for themselves. Like people will spend inordinate amounts of time doing things they're not supposed to be doing just to see if they can. I find it interesting, uh, Richard, that you have an interest in these simulation style games as well. You know, the the football one, for example. Hmm. Uh that I, I suppose I'm mildly surprised that when the FPS genre trends more towards simulation, that that doesn't pay off for you to the same degree. And I, so I wonder, is that just because kind of soccer's a real thing? <clears throat> Sorry, I keep changing what I call it. I can't decide. Tell me what the right answer is. <laughs> soccer, soccer's a real thing. So if you're going to make a soccer game, it's going to look like soccer. Whereas, you know, a game that has guns in it can be anything. So I wonder if there's kind of a preconceived notion of your expectations or what's going on. But do you, can you identify within yourself why you want a soccer game or a football game to feel exactly like football, but you want a shooter to be not necessarily feeling exactly like a military well, experience? I mean, it, it kind of boils down to intensity, I think. Uh, at you're playing soccer it it's a sport you're you're having fun it, it can get very competitive but it's a sport and maybe you get a little bit hurt but no one's killing each other you play a shooter it's incredibly intense if they're going for something simulation-y because you're actually 
looking, it, it looks and sounds and feels like you're killing people. You're in a war zone. There's bombs dropping around you. Uh, the graphics look almost real. The the sounds are are terrifyingly realistic in the modern games. Uh, you're you're shooting guns that look like real guns, and in some cases are real guns that people use to kill people in war zones, and that uh, is is very uncomfortable for me because I don't want to be killing people. I don't want to go to war. I would rather that we that we don't have people killing each other and uh, i i just find the experience a bit overwhelming in in a sensory way uh, the 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 sound the the graphics or all of that going on as you get more realistic it's too much for me and it doesn't have to be strictly a, a simulation issue it's also uh, like modern halos and things uh, like that can be too much for me. And some of the boomer shooters that are going totally off the wall crazy are also too much for me. Interesting. I saw a, a game on, I saw it on Twitter and it's like, uh, I guess you play as a, as a cop and it's like body cam footage is the way the camera is placed. Oh yeah. And, I've seen this. Yeah. And it's like hyper realistic graphics. And it's shot from this body cam footage that, to me, I think, yeah, the graphics look realistic and stuff, obviously. But it's the it's the placement of the camera that makes it, like, a much more uncomfortable experience. Uh, because that places a very strange and uncomfortable context uh, into the player's mind, I think. Because, you know, when you're seeing body cam footage as a civilian, it's usually not for a good reason. <laughs> mm. uh, and I think, uh, like, looking at the comments, a lot of people were very uncomfortable seeing it. And, like, when you when you watch the footage of it, like, and he shoots someone in the head, like, and the person looks as realistic as they do, and it's from that angle, it's it's like, well, I've never really had the opinion of, like, you know, violence in video games might have some implications or whatever but it is interesting and you know i'm not necessarily saying that that is the case with this game either but it is interesting to see that and i definitely had a much more visceral reaction to that than i did than i do to like you know watching a cacodema get killed in doom <laughs> so uh it's, it's gonna be interesting in the next 10 years to see as games get more realistic, as there's the potential for VR to actually take a foothold in uh, perhaps more affordable uh, ways for people to play. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what that does to FPSs uh, in general, in terms of their playability and how uncomfortable people are doing the things that they do in FPS games. Yeah, this is interesting to me because... This is probably the same conversation that happens like every few years as we make another graphical leap yeah, in true. games where we kill people. So I wonder if, because we're looking at this body cam footage game right now and it's holy crap, it's so realistic and contextually seeing it through a body cam is very alarming, but we still don't have the technology to feel the pain of being shot, you know? So it's like, I wonder if you you go 20 years in the future 50 years in the future and you could re you could look at this conversation again back through time and we just look like a bunch of old curmudgeons where it's like can you imagine even thinking for a moment that sh shooting a virtual person and feeling no pain when you get shot could ever be 
you know, too close to real life, but we, we can only see the technology as we have it now. And we're like, oh man, this is yeah, getting really realistic. Sure. You know, so, when yeah, Doom came out, there were people who thought it was too real. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah exactly. I remember seeing it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think it is that, that camera angle though, which is, I think that's the concession I'll make as opposed to it being to do with the graphical fidelity. Uh, oh, sure, yeah. I think that is probably the context of, you know, the last 20 years or whatever. And just seeing it from that perspective, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, there's definitely something to it. Yeah, and you're not necessarily saying this is, like, wrong or unethical. No. You're musing about, I wonder how many people will feel discomfort playing this because exactly. of the context. Yeah, which I do think is is a really interesting question, and I guess we'll find out. Yeah, it is. Oh, God, it's so funny to think about Doom coming out and people thinking it looks too real. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, perfect dark. It's like real life. It's like, it like I was there, dude. Oh, I had a question, actually. In the, in the documentary, I, I believe the majority of the Doom footage that you used was uh, using a, a modern source port with some graphical improvements. Uh, was that, or at least that seemed to be the case, uh, was that an intentional choice or was it a limitation of just kind of the the tech that you had on hand? Well, David captured nearly all of the Doom footage. I think uh, the only footage he didn't capture was a, a bit that I got uh, when I was recreating uh, Richard Gray, uh, the level lord, uh, talking about his experience modding Doom for the first time when he, he got the, the level editor a disc from someone and couldn't believe that this was a this was a thing that you could do and he put it in and then he he uh he made a window large enough that he could walk through uh, and he was possibly the first person ever to be able to walk through that window and and be in another part of the level that isn't accessible so i i recreated that and i captured that footage using the original version of doom because i didn't know how to take the original level editor that was made in like 1993 or 94, I guess it would have been, uh, and, and, and take a, a level I'd made from that and put it in the game properly. I, I was at my limits just learning how to use this tool. So I used the DOS version, but I think David, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he was using a source port so that it would look uh, a little more comfortable on an HD TV uh, because Doom is originally at, at very low resolution. It was a DOS game, so it's running at like 320 by yeah. 200 uh, pixels uh, stretched to a to 320 by 240 uh, size. And uh, you blow that up on the big screen and it looks kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> And so by using a source port, he's able to, to make it widescreen and, uh, and up-resed graphics. And you know, I, I wouldn't have done it that way, but it wasn't my call. I, I talked to the guys early on about uh, how there would be some people who'd be offended by that, that, that there'd be so people... Yeah, there'd be people who... <laughs> And, and there, there has been someone, there, there's at least one person I know of who has complained that 
we didn't strictly use the original graphics of every game and show you that evolution of how the, the graphics have gotten better over time. Uh, I did mention that and, and warn that that might come up, and thankfully it hasn't been a big issue, but there are people who are upset about it, no doubt. If one person's complaining, there must be someone else who was swearing about it too. And uh, it it's just it, it's a really difficult thing to decide when you're making a film. Are you going for pure accuracy, historically speaking, or are you making something look better? And in any case, the fact is that these source ports exist, and it's how most people are going to play Doom today if they want to play Doom. They're going to play one of the source ports, and it'll have slightly better graphics than the original game. Yeah. And so, yeah, no matter how we, about chocolate yeah. doom too, I'm telling. <laughs> yeah, no matter how we do it, it's it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be right. We can show footage from every different version of the game, but then that's confusing because why does the footage style keep changing, and um, why do the graphics keep looking different every time you show the game? Or or we can pick one to to use primarily and occasionally show footage from a couple of other versions to show you that this game can look different and and has had different editions or or different ports made of it and that's a really difficult thing it wasn't only doom that had that it was all the games from the 90s that we had that issue with of course i mean that's always going to be a creative obstacle right i think a lot of people don't think about these things uh in that way but you you always have to make some kind of trade-off whenever you're making any kind of creative work and it sounds like you know, in the case of this one, it's do you want complete um, accuracy for accuracy's sake, or do you want uh, watchable content, <laughs> people to be able to uh, enjoy what they're seeing? And yeah, you make an interesting point too that if anyone's going to pick up Doom and play it today, maybe after watching the documentary, uh, that's what it's going to look like. So uh, we don't listen to the chocolate Doom people anyway, so I wouldn't worry. Yeah, nobody's nobody's wanting to make it make it look uh that old-fashioned we have these improved graphics for a reason but yeah it's interesting so okay yeah well that yeah that was just my question is whether or not it was intentional and i also think it's nice that you got some original footage uh of doom in there so it's not like you're trying to uh you know sweep it under the rug or anything and it's great and uh and i also wanted to say that personally i i love that uh it's it seemed like you kind of got you got john romero and the id tech guys in there and I liked that they kept showing up later on in the documentary, like throughout. Uh, and it, that seemed like a really nice kind of uh, just way to pay respect to sort of the pioneers of of the genre. And, you know, as you said, there are so many facets of not just FPS, but gaming in general that we just might not have at all. Certainly not in the state we do, if not for id games, Wolfenstein and Doom. You know, we've got modding we've got online play and deathmatch right and and just like just things that you wouldn't think about but really were originating or at least popularized by these games and it's it's crazy to think about how much we love mods now in the modding community for all these games and here's doom back in 1993 saying like yeah sure you can make custom maps for this game why not yeah it's crazy that they released it open source uh I feel like, I mean, that's not something that's really <laughs> been taken on by other companies all that much. But if they hadn't done that, just think about how how different the genre would be, probably. 
because the intimacy people were able to get with Doom and its engine and the fact that they sold the engine and let people use it. And the Quake engine, I mean, the Quake engine, Call of Duty was using a modified version of the Quake engine all the way up until they released the most recent reiteration of Modern Warfare. So, like, which was, I don't know, that was maybe like four or five years ago or something. So I think it was like the Quake 3, Quake 4 engine, something like that. It was a modified Quake engine. So, like, id's impact has run all the way through until the modern day, even without, like, its own releases. <laughs> yeah, def- I remember definitely the original Call of Duty was using the Quake 3 engine. But then after that, I don't know if they, they may have changed to Quake 4 at, at some point. Uh, and, and, of course... Half-Life was was based on the Quake engine as well, uh, the original Quake engine, and then they built their own engine uh, a few years later. But So it has just had an enormous influence on the genre, and there's all these other games as well. Uh, I think we've, we've covered a bunch in the film that were connected to the id guys, and some of them in ways you don't expect, like you, you might not, People might not realize or Deus Ex exists because of John Romero saying to Warren Spector, I want to give you lots of money so that you can make your dream game. And <laughs> and the, the Descent wonderful game exists in part because of Romero as well, who who was encouraging the the guys who who made that game to to go with it and it was very nearly published by id Software, but Romero didn't have the bandwidth to work on that while he was also working on uh, Hexen was first or Heretic. I always get those two mixed up, but he was working on the first one of those. Me too. And, uh, <laughs> and so he didn't have time to be publisher for Descent, uh, and he introduced them to Interplay instead. And so we owe a bit of a debt of gratitude to Romero again there. And and he's had touch in all these other things and Carmack's engine has been used in so many different games. So those two guys between them have defined so much of the first-person shooter genre. Yeah, it's wild to think about just kind of how different the landscape would be if that specific team of people hadn't gotten together and, you know, worked on Wolfenstein and Doom and... Like it's it's just it's unbelievable. Like what a butterfly effect. And then I think even Carmack went off and and started pushing VR. Yeah. Like I, I'm pretty sure he's been behind a lot of advances in VR. Yeah, he worked for Facebook for a long time, and I think another company before that that was uh yeah very VR centric. Up until recently, he only left Facebook like last year or something. I think. Yeah. So there's just these these guys have just kind of been in the background, just <laughs> progressing the technology. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's wild. And to touch on something you mentioned just before, so bad, uh, the, the fact that these guys, the it, it guys keep propping up in the documentary was something that I personally loved that we were able to do because it's, it's wonderful to have that, that through line there of these guys were sort of the beginning. Yeah, there were a few games before them that uh, were exploring the same ideas of first-person shooters, but they created the genre. And having them keep coming up and talking about 
how the genre is evolving and what they thought of some of the newer games, I thought was just wonderful. And having Romero effectively be the protagonist of the film because he shows up so often because he's played just about everything and and he's got that incredible memory of his so he can tell us stories and keep bringing up different stories. And even Battlefield, I was surprised when Romero was telling us about the fun that he was having playing Battlefield 1942 with his friends. <laughs> the guy who yeah. is responsible for <laughs> for Doom, uh, the design of Doom, and and this the idea that guides the boomer shooters of today made the thing loved the thing that was the anti boomer shooter, the the massively open military shooter battlefield. Yeah, it, it's what's the word? Is it Sonder? Where you kind of realize that like everybody in the car next to you driving home has their own life that they're going to get back to it's it was interesting and kind of fun to just remember oh yeah john romero is a person and he would have in his free time been just playing games and playing shooters and what an experience it must have been to kind of pioneer a genre with the rest of uh of the the team and then go and play kind of uh your your progeny is that the word God, I suck yeah. at words. Yep. To play the games that came after you, yeah, and see. Correct on both counts. So yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm nailing it today. Although Sonda technically not a real word, but oh, that sucks. But uh, but yeah, you knew what I meant. But yeah, just what a what a fun thing it must be to kind of be playing a super modern shooter, and either see what it's taken from what you've done historically, and what it's outright defying of what you did, and and just kind of getting to see uh getting to see your babies grow up you know <laughs> so that was fun that was a fun thing that I, I was glad you wove into the documentary i really enjoyed seeing that just seeing romero comment on a game and you go oh man yeah i guess he would have played that that's wild i wonder mm -hmm. wonder what his experience was like you know playing descent and and things like that it's gonna be interesting to see where the fps genre goes in terms of because now i think looter shooters are kind of they're obviously very big with like Tarkov and and stuff like that. Uh, this like, and and the battle royale genre obviously has begun this thing of like, well, what about an FPS? But there are consequences for you. <laughs> like, it's not all <laughs> checkpoints and and regenerating health and stuff. Now it's gone in the opposite direction, and and perhaps due to sort of the dark soulsification of of games and like Daisy running in the background, which is which has led to PUBG and all this other stuff. Um, now it's sort of very like when you die, it's real bad. That's sort of the the crux of these design elements. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if like we go more in this weird roguelike kind of style with FPSs, where like consequences in multiplayer become more and more uh, impactful, or if this boomer shooter genre is going to expand outside of uh you know indian double a development and it's going to seep into the triple a uh, i guess we'll have to see what happens with like the next iteration for triple a doom with like new doom eternal or, or whatever it is they decide to do uh it's there's sort of a lot of avenues it could go down i think yeah and uh, also i would add to that uh, on a design level uh, boomer shooters are what they're sort of their second or third generation now uh, but they're still very much taking their cue from games in the 90s. So they're still 
feeling like mm-hmm. this is Duke Nukem 3D, but it's modern. This is Doom, but it's modern. We haven't really had much in in the line of this is Half-Life, but it's modern, or this is Tribes, but it's modern. But uh, I'm sure that'll be happening more and more. But then what's going to happen next, another generation or two along, after people have made modern versions of all the 90s styles of shooters? Where's it going to go next? Mm-hmm. Because the real the real shooters, they got obsessed with military at that point. So where will boomer shooters go next creatively? Well, this is the thing. Right? It's going to be a cyclical thing of like, well, it's going to be 10 years of everything's a boomer shooter, and then everyone will get sick of that, and they'll be like, I really just want a realistic military experience. I'm tired of all of these arcade games. And then <laughs> yeah, it we'll could be back be. to military shooters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping someone will break it. Yeah. And everyone will be like, oh man, this brown military shooter is such a breath of fresh <laughs> air after. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's how it is sometimes. Well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Richard. I know David was supposed to be here and obviously a bit a bit disappointed he couldn't make it, but you know, it happens. Um and I feel like, you know, you've you've more than covered everything that we sort of were were interested in with regards to the documentary and, and more honestly, uh I appreciated like how candid you were about about certain elements of it, how difficult it was to make at times. Um just a really interesting conversation in general. So yeah, thanks again. No worries. Yeah. And maybe uh if you could just quickly, you know, remind us uh, where we can find it. And- yeah, so the the documentary is called FPS, the first person shooter. So, like, I think the the full title officially is FPS, first person shooter, the definitive FPS documentary. Because we want to make sure that you know it's about FPS games. <laughs> but uh, internally, we just call it FPS Doc, and the website for it is fpsdoc.com so fpsdoc.com and uh as we're recording this right now uh the sale you you're buying it via uh, a youtuber called powerpack and then uh, it'll be someone else i think we're trying this thing out sort of an experiment where we're partnering with different influencers every week at the moment uh and they're putting up a video and social media and stuff and and they get a cut of the sales for their week or however many days it is that they are in the seat. And then we go on to the next person until we run out of people that we can partner with. And then I guess we'll probably still be selling it in some capacity at that point. But it's all digital available right now. Uh, there will almost certainly be another physical release of some sort at some point uh, with leftover stock or uh, just another Blu-ray print run, but it's only digital version available right now. Uh, And yeah, the whole film runs about four and a half hours, so you're getting a lot of stuff for your money. And uh, I also wanted to shout out to uh, a a new project that... uh, I'm working on with another couple of people from the company, uh, which is about uh, the evolution of horror games. And uh, we are in a, a validation phase right now, which means that we are trying to figure out whether there's a market for us to go ahead and put this into production and make it and go to crowdfunding and stuff. 
So we have a, a landing page up with a, a synopsis and a survey that we'd love for anyone who's into horror games to look at and fill out with some feedback so we can figure out whether to do this thing and and how to refine our vision for it. So that you can find at creatorvc.com slash terabytes, and that's bytes with a Y. So creatorvc.com slash terabytes. Is that terabytes as it's usually spelt, or is it a pun? Is it terabytes? Terror. Uh, so, you know, the word terror uh, of uh, it's terrifying kind of terror. So T-E-R-R-O-R-B-Y-T-E-S. Having a bit of a pun. Fantastic. It's great. It's <laughs> I name. knew it was a pun. I heard it. I yeah. was like, this not only should this be a pun, but I need to make sure that it is one. Yeah. I didn't think of it, but I I knew this this has got to be the title once uh, once I saw it. <laughs> <Great. laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. I guess it's also worth saying that um that this isn't like a paid sponsorship, right? You're not you're not paying us. We just no. wanted to have you on to have a talk with you. Yeah. Um, we're not yeah. part of this promotional campaign. Yeah. So thank you so much for doing that and giving us your time and telling me uh, why sports games are fun. Finally <laughs> unlocking that puzzle for me. So bad's downloading <laughs> uh, FIFA 2021 right now. Yeah, I got to play that be a pro mode. <laughs> I got to do it. It's still so funny to me, man. Like, <laughs> I really want the, I want someone to make a game now where it's that be a pro mode and they don't ever advertise that this is part of the game. But at a certain point, like, your character just, like, goes home, like, at the end of the <laughs> hockey match or whatever, and then you just start living out this person's life in all its mundanity until, you know, like, the following week when another game happens. Yeah. It would be incredible. There was a an MMO. I, I never played it because I don't play MMOs, but there was a, a, a soccer MMO at some point that... Uh, oh my god <laughs> that that you could play and so you know as mmos do you are having to do all this other stuff you gotta run your character around the world you can you take them to a shop and you buy stuff you you go through training you talk to other people you sort of twiddle your <laughs> thumbs while you're waiting That's for your so next funny. chance to play a match uh, whether you it's going to an instanced <laughs> football game or whatever. Yeah. Whether it's like a full 11-on-11 11 11 match or you're just playing yeah. some little match with a few people. Uh, it, it's wild. And oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of disappointed oh. I never tried it because it sounds so crazy. I don't wow. think I would. Right, I've got, got another idea. It's called FIFA Dad Sunday Football Games. <laughs> and it's just casual games with a few dads on a Sunday, but it's got the FIFA branding. Now that <laughs> EA doesn't have it, I think people would be excited for that. It's like really casual. Your guys aren't very good. Like you can't actually play very well when you play the game. Maybe it's like co-op style controls. <laughs> I think it could be good. Yeah. And, you know, again, there's something that is that is sort of similar where there was a Sony made a, a soccer game for like a seven years or something uh, starting at the end of the ps1 era going right through the ps2 era and for the first few years they had this mode called jumpers for goalposts where you play with schoolboy teams so they're all kind of crap and uh, initially the goals actually were just a pair of jumpers on the ground and and you can see like uh, as 
a couple of school kids in the background, just they're frozen because it's PlayStation 1 graphics. But it was weird and fun, and I, I wish someone would just make an entire game that was that. All right, you talked me into it. I'll do it.